Well, this morning, before we uh, begin, I think it's just important to note that we've been walking through these last couple weeks through some tough passages in the book of Luke. Um, and this morning, we're going to find ourselves in a passage that won't get any easier, wherein Jesus will answer the question, will the, will the people uh, that get into the kingdom of God be few? And what we're going to see is that Jesus' answer is uh, not as accommodating as our culture might assume. Luke has been rehearsing for us the clarity of Jesus' preaching and his teaching on heaven and on hell, on eternal life and eternal death. And our temptation is, on Sundays, even amidst kind of difficult times, to kind of navigate or kind of get to the warm and fuzzies all the time. And when we engage the tough passages on hell, our temptation, I think, is to either explain the reality of hell away or to think of it as some manipulative device to get people to pray a prayer. We will do neither of those this morning, since Jesus does neither of those. But instead, we will remember that these tough passages here on hell and the like, these are good gifts from God. The Lord is not obligated to warn us about hypocrisy. He's not obligated to warn us about hell, and yet He does. It's the kindness of God that is intended to lead us to repentance. And I believe that's what this nation needs more than anything else in these days. Faith and repentance. We as a nation have historically been an arrogant people. And that includes the church. And these passages are meant to level that arrogance, to cut us down to size as we come to the foot of the mighty mount of God. Things are changing in our nation, and some foreign history will uh, tell of these days that we're living in. And so, beloved, may we be found to be on the side of righteousness, no matter what that may mean for us or our children. Christian author Oz Guinness writes of these days when he says that Christians in the West are living in a grand clarifying moment. The gap between Christians and the wider culture is widening. And many formerly nominal Christians are becoming so-called religious nuns. In many ways, he says, we are in the Thursday evening of the Holy Week. The cock has not crowed, but the angry crowd who would like to see the end of our Lord in the Western world has already seen and heard enough to press us on toward surrender. And so, he concludes, this is no time for cowards, for fence-sitters, or for those who wish to hedge their bets until they hear the judge's verdict on the contest. He says we must become an impossible people. Christian with hearts that can melt with compassion, but with faces like flint and backbones of steel that are unmanipulative, unmanipulable, unbribable, undeterrable, and unclubbable without ever losing the gentleness, the mercy, the grace, and compassion of our Lord. Unquote. We're going to see all of this on full display as we turn to Luke 13, 10-35. A passage I'm sure familiar to many of you, although many of you, like me, are more familiar with Matthew's version of this, wherein Jesus teaches about the narrow door and the wide door. Jesus will go on to emphasize, as He has, the destiny of the many who will go into the wide gate of destruction. And so may we heed his warnings amidst these perilous days in order that we all may strive to enter into that narrow door. Big idea of the passage this morning, wrestle your way into the kingdom of God or else you will be left in the darkness. Or, kids, you've got a little thing on that sheet there that says big idea. You can just write this. Strive to rest and recline. Strive to rest and recline. Otherwise, you will be outside. So in the passage just before this, in verses 1 to 5, Luke highlights Jesus' call to repent, to turn away from sin. He then moves into that parable in verses 6 to 9, where he tells the parable of a fig tree. Fig tree is often referred to as Israel. And before cutting down that dead fig tree, the vine dresser in the parable says, let's give it one more shot. Let's put some fertilizer around it before we cut it down. And if it doesn't 
produce anything, then we'll cut it down. That's meant to be a preview for what comes next in our passage today. Israel is that kind of fig tree that has borne little fruit. But before being cut down, the fertilizer has come. Jesus has come to clarify, will he find faith on the earth? Luke 13, verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in Work, six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from, his bond, from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Well, this is yet another story of a Sabbath day. We've seen a lot of these. We're going to see more again next week. Another story of working on the Sabbath. We've seen that it's Jesus' habit to go to the synagogue on a Sunday. Uh, we might say today it's his habit to go to church on Sundays. Uh, and oftentimes when he goes, he teaches. Uh, there in this gathering, if you would look over there in your imagination, imagine the people coming together. There amidst the crowd is a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She's bent over, it says. And don't lose sight of what the text says. It says Jesus saw her. I wonder how many people looked over her. But Jesus saw her. And beloved, he still sees those that are broken that gather amongst his people. But he calls her over. We can imagine her calling, her calling her over, and he frees her by laying hands on her. And don't miss this word, circle it. It says that she is freed immediately. 18 years, verse 16 says, of being bound by Satan. And Jesus defeats Satan in a moment by the touch of his hand. Friend, you need to know that while many will make fun and think it, again, some manipulative device, Satan is real. Satan is powerful. And you also need to know, more importantly, he is no match for Jesus. As we have learned back in chapter 11, Jesus is the stronger man that handles Satan like you or I would handle an ant. This woman we see in verse 16 is a daughter of Abraham that he heals. And friends, that's not just physical lineage language. That's not what Jesus is referencing here. He's saying that she is of the faith of Abraham. She is the faith of Abraham. In other words, she trusts the Lord. This is more, friends, than a physical healing. This is also a spiritual healing. Spiritual, right, is a, Satan is a spiritual reality. The woman came to the synagogue to be built up in spiritual truths. And Jesus freed her physical reality by her trusting, believing in the spiritual reality that Jesus' strength, his righteousness, was one who could, be, who could free her by his mercy. And he could do so with ease. She believed that, she trusted that, and the Lord did it. We see the faith of the woman also all the more the way that she responds. She glorified God. And beloved, this is how we ought to respond when the Lord heals us of our besetting sins, of our physical problems, of our physical pains. When He does good in our life, we should respond in the same way. Glorifying God. That's the end of our life. That's the aim of our life, to make much of Him. But instead of delighting in this reality, as the woman does, as the rest of the crowd does, 
the ruler of the synagogue, those rulers, they get mad. They get ticked off. See, this guy is probably like people today that get mad when good things happen to people from rival tribes. Instead of rejoicing in the good of this woman, they get ticked off. Why? Because Jesus worked on the Sabbath. We've seen this so many times. He moves into this ruler, moves into self-righteous lecture on how they've got six other days they can be doing this. And needless to say, Jesus ain't having this behavior. Jesus turns into full beast mode right here in this moment because he spots the hypocrisy of this man And he says, in essence, using 21st century language, you open the door to your car on Sundays, guys. You go get gas on Sundays. Why can't this woman who has been suffering for 18 years, trusting in the Lord, why can't she get freedom on the day of rest? You hypocrites. Jesus, the great revealer, reveals this man is more interested in keeping this woman in her pain than he is in rejoicing that her pain is relieved. Jesus reveals, don't don't miss this, he reveals that these men, these rulers, they are more committed to the law than they are the intent of the law. Let's say that again. Jesus reveals these men are more committed to the law than the intent of the law. What's the intent of the law as it relates to the Sabbath? Mark chapter 2, Jesus teaches the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath is a day of rest. It's a day of rest. And it was instituted, it was given by a good gift from God so that man might enter into it and rest. In other words, the Sabbath was meant to be an employee of ours. We weren't supposed to be an employee to it. It was given to work for us. It was given to give us rest, to give us life. And these guys missed that teaching entirely. So focused on the law, they missed the intent of it. And they missed it, by the way, as men of religion, as Bible people. Jesus, then just like Satan, puts this dude and all of his adversaries, verse 17, love this, he puts them to shame. You don't mess with Jesus, folks. If you do, you lose. You step into the ring with Christ and his word, you not only lose, you lose like a 10-year-old boy fighting in the ring with Mike Tyson. I mean, it ain't even close. Jesus, friends, has no rivals. He has tons of challengers, but no rivals. Jesus is stronger than Satan, stronger than sickness, stronger than hypocritical religious zealots that use the Bible for their own ends. He sees those of faith that come to him in their weakness and he uses his might to free them. But friend, if you oppose Jesus and his word, you lose. In fact, the way Jesus displays his power is not the way the world does. The way that he shows this might is by subversively using the weak to shame the strong. He builds his kingdom. He shows his power by building his kingdom on the backs of women like this woman. The backs of people like this woman, bent over for 18 years. Not by, he doesn't specifically use all the earthly rulers like these synagogue rulers to advance his kingdom. He uses someone that seems to have no power, no voice, and is a social outcast. He uses someone that is considered among, he does not use the, those that are considered the elite of society oftentimes. Sometimes he does, but oftentimes he doesn't. And that's what we read about very next in the passage, verse 18, how his kingdom goes. It's by using people like this bent over woman, not like the kinds of people like the rulers of the synagogue. Take a look, verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man can look, man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. 
Friends, Jesus is always teaching. He's always teaching. That's why Christianity is built on uh, the teaching of the word. His favorite topic we know to teach on was the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. It's what he does so often. And listen, if you've always wondered a good definition, some people say the reign and the rule of Christ. That's one way of saying it. But just look at this passage. It tells you what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is where sin, Satan, and death are put to shame and eternal rest breaks into the world by the power of King Jesus. You see all what the kingdom is. Kingdom of God is where sin, Satan, and death are put to shame and eternal rest break into the world by the power of King Jesus. Here, Jesus says the kingdom advances unlike other kingdoms. It begins small, seemingly insignificant. Again, like with people like this woman. It begins like with saviors that are born in Bethlehem by virgins that has no home to lay his head. But it begins, or then it grows so much that it's so large that you can't not see it. That's that seed analogy. Then he goes into the leaven, what you put in bread. It begins, it it is like, he says, it's like leaven that is hidden, that is hidden, that is hidden in plain sight. Yet it spreads and spreads till eventually it takes over everything in the bread. Jesus says his kingdom starts small, starts hidden, but like the root system of an oak tree in winter, it moves below the surface until its work is eventually so large and in charge, it animates and is seen by all. You can't dismiss it. Later in Luke 17, verse 20 to 21, Jesus says of the kingdom that the kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. No one will say, see here or there. For you see the kingdom of God is in your midst. That's Jesus' words. See, the, the kingdom of God broke in on that suffering woman of faith when the freedom of healing broke in by Jesus' power. And guess what? The ruler didn't see it. He didn't see the kingdom coming. In Luke 17, they didn't see the kingdom when Jesus was in their face. And get this, guys. Stop and think about this. The kingdom of God broke in on me and you when we repented and gave our life to Christ. The kingdom is in us. He's freed us from the punishment of our sin as we trusted in the preeminent power of His mercy on the cross and in the resurrection. The the kingdom broke in on us, on me, with jacked up faces like this, breaking in. And Jesus gathers we citizens that he's broken in on. He gathers we citizens of the kingdom out of the sight of the power structures of the world and slowly he builds his kingdom till eventually it covers the earth like the leaven covers the bread. And so we should know that the average power broker of the world, if they were given sight, even of this little minuscule gathering, listen to me preach about heaven and hell and Satan and the things of the like, They would look at things like us and come in here and say that there's nothing to see here. They would scoff at us. They would laugh at us in some ways. They might attribute some kind of power to maybe a really big church building that is able to offer state-sanctioned services. But the power brokers of this world looks at a little church like ours and says there's nothing to see there. We are nothing more than a pitiful a lot of people whom time has passed by and we just go on believing superstitions. And yet, the reality is, the church of Jesus Christ, while not the kingdom in its entirety, the church of Christ as an outpost of that kingdom is the greatest power on the earth. And it spreads and it spreads and it grows and it grows. It marches on, beloved, right now. It marches on in India. It marches on in China. It marches on in Iran and and on the continent, all over the continent of Africa. Over the centuries, friends, kingdoms like the Mongols and the Romans, maybe like the Americans, they rise and they fall. It's so common. And yet the church of Christ presses on. And eventually, friends, everyone will see that. They won't be able to dismiss it. And for most of them, Jesus teaches us, for most of them, 
when Christ is exposed for who he is, in their sight, they understand him, they see who he is, they will finally see the kingdom, it will be too late for them. That's what comes next. We've seen that Jesus is stronger than Satan, that he frees by faith, he loathes hypocritical religion, he overcomes it all subversively, using the weak to shame the strong. And for many, when they do see it, it's too late. Take a look, verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from the east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here and for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those words in verse 22, beloved, are incredibly illuminating. Don't lose sight of them. Remember way back in chapter 9, verse 51, remember there it said Jesus had set his face towards the kingdom. Remember that? Towards Jerusalem, I should say. And here, Luke helpfully reminds us of that. We see in verses 32 and 33, Jesus is literally dead set on his mission to go to Jerusalem and offer his life as a sacrifice for sinners who believe. He knows the time is short for the many that are in front of them. Friends, just as he knows the time is short for many, that are here today, now. And so may we consider this passage in light of all that came before it. Don't lose sight of all the things that have come up to this, this journeying towards Jerusalem, setting his face towards Jerusalem, all the stuff he's taught. Remember, remember he saw back in chapter 12, everything's going to be revealed in our lives. Remember he said, don't fear man more than you fear God. Speak up. Uh, on my behalf, if you don't, you'll be denied before the judgment seat of God. Don't seek life in stuff. Don't seek life in food, in clothing, uh, or in your body. Life is more, Jesus said, than all of these things. Don't be anxious as you speak up. Seek the kingdom. Stay ready for action. I'm going to return. You're not going to know when it's going to come. It's going to come at an unexpected time. And so, therefore, settle up with God now while you can. Repent. Find freedom in me. Then the question Will it be just a few that are saved? Jesus' answer is yes. It will be a few. We get that from verse 24 when he references the many that will not be able to enter. So what's Jesus' answer? Will those be saved be few? Verse 24, his answer implicitly is yes. So what is it we fewer to do? Strive. Strive. Wrestle. 
struggle, fight. The word in the Greek there is where we get our word agonize. Fight to enter into that narrow door. There's only going to be a few that are saved. The many are going to be left out. You're going to strive to get in. You cannot coast. People don't coast into the narrow door. We see this all through the New Testament. As Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.10, For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. He says just after that, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. The author of Hebrews says in 4.11, let us strive to enter into that rest. Peter will go on to say, prepare your minds for action. He says later, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. Jude says, contend for the faith. Because about so often the most frequent illustrations of New Testament apostles are those that, that compare us to athletes and to soldiers. The answer to those who will be saved or how many will be saved, the answer is strive, contend, fight to get in. And that is strictly followed up. It's quickly followed up by these ones that say, they will not be able to enter. Strive for, because many, there's his answer, will seek to enter and will not be able. There are going to be precious few, friends, that will strive, that will want to get in at the base of it all. And then there will be the all too many that won't strive, which is to say they don't really want to get in to the kingdom. But instead, they will presume upon Jesus and the teaching of His kingdom. And when it's too late, they'll try to get into that narrow door and Jesus in the parable says that the Master will come to the door as it has been closed and say to them, I do not know where you come from. I do not know where you come from. He says it twice. I do not know where you come from. And the many will say when Jesus or the master says, that, I do not know where you come from. The many will say, ah, oh, but you know, Jesus, we were with you. You taught in our streets. We ate with you. In other words, what they're saying, the people that are outside claiming to get in when it's too late. In essence, what they're saying is we were acquaintances, Jesus, with you. Remember, remember, I used to go to church every so often. I threw a few bucks in the plate. Read my Bible every so often. Come on, I, I know we didn't know each other well, Jesus, but like, remember me? And Jesus says, I don't know where you come from. To use Matthew's version, he says, I don't know you. And not only does Jesus not know them, he deems them workers of evil. Which tells us, friends, that Jesus has two categories of people on the earth. Two. Those that strive to enter into the narrow gate of the kingdom, narrow door of the kingdom, and those that take him for granted, don't strive, and are therefore considered workers of evil. There's no third category for niceness, well-intentioned. There are those that are fighting to enter in by the grace of God and those that don't and try to get in when it's too late. Those that strive to get in, they, though, they go in with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the marriage supper of the Lamb in the kingdom. We've thought about that a couple weeks ago when Jesus is serving us at that meal. That's looking forward to Revelation 19. And then there are those that don't go into that meal. And they go to another place. A place. Note that it's, he says it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth where they will see the others go in, but they will not go in themselves. And then that final comment, there's going to be people from all over going in. And then he says, some are last who will be first. and Some are first who will be last. In other words, 
of those two groups of people, there will be people like the Israelites, like the Pharisees, maybe like people in Western Europe and the United States of America, who have had access to the Word, close uh, revelation to Jesus and His teaching. They are kind of first in that way because they're so close. The truth is right there in front of them. And many of them will be last. They will be shut out, cast out. But there will be others who are last, the ones that are from far away. Those that have not had the privilege of sitting up close and hearing the teaching of Christ, and yet they will be first. And friends, we know that that's what Jesus means because he moves right into the center of Jerusalem's worship, Israel's worship in Jerusalem. But before we kind of move in for some application, let's take a look at this next passage real quick. There, Jesus shows off his superiority once again, moving down into the next portion there, verse 31. Jesus shows off his superiority once again by easily dismissing the threats of the governor, Herod, who is seeking to kill him. Jesus says, in essence, to the response of those folks, listen, you go and tell that cat, Herod, I got work to do. I'm casting out demons. I'm healing people. I'm on a mission to go and accomplish. And Herod can't do nothing about it. I've got to get to Jerusalem. And then, when I get in Jerusalem, they're going to kill me like they do all the prophets. And notice the movement of Jesus' heart the second he rehearses that reality of his being killed in Jerusalem. Notice the movement of his heart. He moves right into lament. Moves into a grieving of Jerusalem's history and their posture towards God's revelation. You can almost hear the tears in his eyes as we read those passages. Jerusalem. 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 capital city of God's people who is famous for killing God's prophets. If you'd only been willing, I would have gathered you and your children and I'd have taken you in like a mama bear takes in her cubs. But you didn't want me. You didn't want me. So much of the story of Israel could be summed up in those words. God, we see, was disposed towards His people and they just didn't want Him. They were dazzled by other idols. No matter how good God was to them, no matter how clear He was to them in His Word, no matter how many times they were warned, their repentance was rarely genuine and never more so than when Jesus shows up. The one that they had been taught to look for the capstone of all God's promises was right there in front of them and they were unwilling to strive, unwilling to suffer for the gospel and the life eternal that is found in Him. Instead, they mock Jesus or worse, ignore Him and His calls for repentance. Eventually, they will put Him up on a cross. And when Jesus considers all of this, the thing that comes out of His heart is lament. Earlier, right, we saw his anger towards hypocritical religion, which is true. But it's also, you've got to have a better 3D version of the heart of Christ. He has anger towards hypocritical religion, but he also has lament. He's grieved by it. He's saddened by it. And he goes on to say to these people in Jerusalem, Behold, your house is forsaken. And he goes on to say, in essence, you... When you see me, it'll be too late. You'll say in the end, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but it'll be too late. You'll see me, but it'll be too late. And this makes Jesus grieve. And I believe it does still, since the Jesus we see on earth is no different than the Jesus that is currently reigning at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And so therefore, friends, to all of us that are listening in, we all have two ways to respond to this Jesus. As clearly as anything we've ever seen or heard before. And so, listen, look at me. If you've, if you've kind of tuned out, tune back in. If ever there was a time in your life for weighing out your response to Jesus, here it is. 
Here it is. Jesus' word has been clearly read and explained to you. The warnings are crystal clear. How will you respond? As we've said, there's two ways. God will see every single person on planet earth in one of two ways at his judgment seat. Which one are you? Let's just briefly end by looking at those two responses to evaluate where you stand, where I stand in relation to this teaching of Christ. We'll start first with the believer. If you are likened to the woman of faith here in this passage, that means two very basic things mark your life. One, you come to Jesus. You come to Jesus. You look to Him like that daughter of Abraham did. You look at Him to free you, to heal you, to give you life. You come to Jesus. You submit and come to Jesus, trusting Him and Him alone. And then secondly, from that power, you then strive to enter in the kingdom. Those two basic things mark you. You come to Jesus in faith to free you, and then you strive to enter into that kingdom. And friends, you should know, listen, some of you are going, wait a minute, what's, I thought we were saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. All right, and you're kind of confused. Listen, the reality is being saved by grace through faith in Christ alone is not opposed to striving. The apostles of Christ understood that grace was opposed to earning the kingdom. But it was never opposed to effort towards it. We don't earn it, but we ought to always have effort. So do you trust Jesus? Do you go to Jesus with your problems, but especially the deepest problem of your sin? Do you understand yourself to have sinned against God and therefore worthy to be cast out of the kingdom, worthy to be outside, worthy to receive eternal death? And like the woman here, do you come to Jesus with faith and trust in His power alone to save you? Do you believe that He overcame your sin and your death and the wrath that was due to Paul upon on you? Do you trust that He did that on the cross? Do you trust that He overcame it in the resurrection, the bodily resurrection? Do you believe that your faith is a gracious gift of God that connects you to that saving power? Do you trust Him? Do you hold fast to Him? Do you daily go to Him for daily bread? For daily grace? And then, secondly, from that grace, from that mercy, do you then strive to enter into that kingdom? Which is to say, is it your intention to obey Jesus' commands? Jesus said, those who love me obey my commandments. Do you love Jesus by striving to keep His commands. Or just the ones that you like. Just the ones that are easy. Or do you just dismiss them all? Going back to the few passages, the passages that we studied in the past, do you regularly repent of sin? Do you seek life in the kingdom regularly, striving to put off life in the abundance of possessions and body clothing or a favor in the eyes of man? Are you regularly trying to put that off and put on the love of Christ? Or to use the words of James, is your faith illustrated by your works of righteousness? Because as Paul says, a faith without works is dead. So does your faith work? Do you grieve as Jesus does at the sight of sin and injustice? Or do you gladly approve or participate in that sin? The reality is, friends, none of us do that perfectly. I don't do that perfectly, that's for sure. But that's the whole point of repentance that Jesus just taught. But I guess what it all comes down to is, do you have faith in the sufficiency of the atoning work of Christ? And do you love and trust Jesus enough to suffer for Him? Be it small or great, in order to rest in His love at His table forever in the next. You'll know that by your willingness to do hard things, to say hard things, because you love and trust Jesus. 
And when you get it wrong, it grieves you because it grieves the Savior that you love. And you repent of it and you move on. And for the members of our church, as you answer this question, you can be sure that this church affirms that you are these things. That's the beauty of the local church. You're not left to figure this stuff out on your own. If we were concerned about where you are, we would have told you because we love you. But again, this is the beauty of the local church, to love each other in, in Christ in advance of Jesus' unexpected return so that you don't find yourself in a surprising situation. That's what we do. We're trying to do this work of clarifying before he comes. And so members of Restoration Church, listen, our affirmation of your faith as well as your baptism and your admittance to the Lord's table, that is evidence that this outpost of the kingdom of God, this church, this collection of deeply flawed yet gloriously saved sinners, sons and daughters of God, uh, we believe that you are among the daughters, sons and daughters of Abraham, faith of Abraham. As you, as we say that you have a place at the Lord's table, which Lord willing, we will get to take soon. If we believe that you have a place at the Lord's Supper in this church, then we're saying we believe that you have a place in the Lord's table in heaven. Wherein you might recline and rest as your master serves you. <laughs> and so rest, beloved, in the love and the power of Christ. And listen, don't lose sight of this. Keep striving. Wake up. To enter into that narrow door. We can't get lazy. So easy to get lazy in these pandemic times. Staying at home. Not gathering with the church. It's harder for us to see each other. Don't get lazy. Satan's going to use this time to try to keep us lazy and have us to stray. Don't get lazy. Don't hit the coast button. Invite correction and prayer from trusted brothers and sisters. Stay in the light. Stay among trusted brothers and sisters. And help others along the way too. That's what we do. If you pull yourself away from the church... You pull yourself away from the light. But as for you, secondly, friend that stands outside the narrow door, the warning of Christ is clear for you, friend. I don't know how Jesus could be more clear. I understand that when we read this passage, there are many that will dismiss these words as, again, as little more than superstition or manipulation. But friend, I assure you, Jesus' words here are not any more superstition or manipulation as is evidenced by the public resurrection of Christ. If he has risen from the grave as he said he would, then the words that he spoke before that resurrection must be true. And so therefore, friend, this is a moment that is an incredibly kind and gracious gift from God to you. This moment is a really good moment from God to you right now. God is warning you to get right with Him now while you can. You don't know, friend, if you have one more day or one more week or one or two more decades. You don't know. Nor do you know, nor do I know, when Jesus will return. He said it's going to come at a time we don't expect. You have an opportunity in this moment to turn from your sin and to go to Jesus like this woman did. To be freed from sin, to come into the love of Christ. As we considered last week from the teaching of Jesus in Luke 13, 4, we don't know that all what God is doing in this pandemic. We don't. But one thing is clear from 13, 4. One thing is clear is God is calling all of us to repentance. And I plead with you, friend, to repent of sin. I plead with you to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. I plead with you to strive to enter into that narrow door by loving God, by obeying God, as hard as that is. I plead with you to trust in the Lord that you might be among the few that enter into that narrow door and not among the many that will be cast out into the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Some of you might say, Nathan, could you be a little more clear as to what it might look like if that's me? Well, I think the first thing I would say is by looking at what I just explained, all those things about what it means to believe, 
to repent, believe on Jesus alone, and then to strive. But also this passage gives us two other ways to show what it looks like to be cast out. We see that in these rulers of the, the rulers of the synagogue. Two things that mark them. They are consistently hypocritical. And secondly, they are not willing to enter into the narrow door. That's verse 34. Jesus calls the others hypocrites by them taking the name of God and yet not having the heart of God. And then secondly, they're not willing to enter in. They're not willing to strive. They don't want to. These two criteria, again, are, are exemplified in the rulers of the synagogue, right? Where this guy is more interested in what should be done on other days than he was attentive to the mercy of Christ on that day. He was more interested in what he deemed uh, was disobedience in others, so much so that he never saw the disobedience in his own life. That's Twitter and Facebook right there. Most of it. Instead of rejoicing with the woman who had suffered for 18 years, he doesn't rejoice with her. 18 years, this poor woman. Instead of rejoicing, instead of glorifying God as the others did, he was willing to have her and the others that were suffering suffer one more day. Keep glory from God just so that he might enforce his own self-righteousness upon them. And he did this, by the way. These rulers did this at a house of worship that Jesus said was forsaken. He couldn't even see amidst all of his religiosity that God had abandoned them because they, because he was unwilling to submit and to strive and to come up under the caring wings of God. Instead, he would appeal to his own merits, to his own place in Israel, all the while denigrating those unlike him. And so on the day of Christ's return, he will see that all of his religiosity will be futile. And the other thing he will see is that he will finally see Jesus for who he was. He didn't see it in this passage. But he, on the day that Christ returns, he will see Jesus. That's what verse 35 is all about. He will attempt on that day, according to Jesus' parable, on that day he will appeal to his acquaintance with Jesus in order to enter that narrow door, but he will left out with the many into eternal darkness. It'll be too late. And so again, just to sum it up, consistent, unrepentant hypocrisy as evidenced by an unwillingness to submit to Lord Jesus and strive to enter in. More interested in making Christ an acquaintance, not Lord. More interested in your own self-righteousness not rejoicing in those who are going in by Christ's righteousness. More interested in your glory or your tribe's glory and not in the Lord's glory. This is so important. I'm just going to walk through this again. More interested in making Christ an acquaintance, not Lord. More interested in your self-righteousness, not rejoicing in those who are going in by Christ's righteousness. More interested in your glory, not the Lord's glory. Friend, if that describes you, then everything can change right now. Everything can change right now. Just as it did for that woman, immediately. All you have to do is do like that woman did. Go to Jesus right now in prayer. Just as that woman did. Submit your life to Him. Strive to enter by Him from His grace. And you'll be free. You don't have to wonder. And so listen, if you need someone to talk to, and I would encourage you to talk to, if you want to do this, I pray, I've been praying all week that numerous people would do, would have this conversation, that God would save people. Call another believing friend, someone you know that love and trust. Call them up right now. Just turn off the sermon and go call them right now. And just tell them what you've been thinking about this. If you don't have someone to call, send me an email and we will schedule a time to talk quickly. But don't put it off. Don't put it off. That's what Satan would have you to do. Don't put it off. Come to Jesus. Find healing. Find freedom in Him. And for those of us that have, those for us that wait for Jesus' return, those of us that are striving to enter that narrow door, 
May we all continue to repent. May we all continue to strive. May we not get lazy. May we help each other as we all get tired along the way. And may we, listen, urgently call others to Jesus while we can. There's one thing you won't be able to do in heaven. That's evangelize the lost. May we do it now. May we be a church that has this evangelistic appeal that is loving and kind and urgent. It's calling people to come and trust. We are God's ambassadors. We are His mouthpiece. He put His Spirit in you for a hundred things. One of those is, is to warn people and to call them into faith and repentance. So may we be a church that calls people, that appeals to them. Maybe you would call a family member, a friend now, today. Go call them and appeal with them to love Jesus and trust Jesus and follow Jesus. Show them that Christ is the true and lasting peace. Don't just show them all the stuff they're going to get, all the bad stuff. Show them the good stuff. Show them what happens to the daughter. Show them both. So may we commit to doing this regularly. And guys, don't forget what Jesus said about the kingdom. We're going to be doing this out of the sight of the world. The world's not going to be looking at us saying, there's the winners. And yet in the end, it'll be seen as such. It's hard to follow Jesus, isn't it? It's good. So, may you love Him. May you trust Him. May you come to Him. And may you strive to enter in while there's time. And we will help each other along. And when we sit around that table, all of us, I'll look at each of you. And we will say, it was all worth it. As our Master, Jesus, sets bread right in front of us. Let's pray to Him now. God, forgive us for where we struggle to believe, to come to You. God, forgive us for the times in which we don't strive. And Give us mercy, God. Give us daily bread, daily grace to wake up and like this woman, come to You to be freed every day. And from that strength, may we strive. And may many, the many that will be cast out, oh God, may we be eager to go to them, to invite them in. For the sake of your glory and their good, we pray in Jesus' name.